This is the Witnesses of History podcast, presented by Jeff Longley. Hello, and welcome for the final time to Witnesses of History. We start in 1348. Henry Knighton reports on the Black Death, which is estimated to have killed a quarter of the population of Europe, about 25 million people at the time. There's controversy about the nature of the disease. It may have been the bubonic plague. This is Henry Knighton's report. In this year, there was a general mortality among men throughout the world. It began first in India and then appeared in Tharsis, then among the Saracens and at last among the Christians and Jews, so that in the space of one year, namely from Easter to Easter, 8,000 legions of men, according to widely prevalent rumours in the court of Rome, died in those remote regions, besides Christians. The king of Tharsis, seeing such a sudden and unheard of mortality among his people, set out with a great multitude of nobles intending to seek out the Pope at Avignon and have himself baptised as a Christian, believing the vengeance of God to have overtaken his people because of their sinful disbelief. But when he had travelled twenty days, he heard along the road that the plague had invaded the ranks of the Christians as well as other nations, and therefore he turned about to go back to his own country. But the Christians, following the Tharsians, attacked them from the rear and slew 2,000 of them. The dreadful pestilence penetrated the seacoast by Southampton and came to Bristol, and there almost the whole population of the town perished, as if it had been seized by sudden death, for few kept their beds more than two or three days, or even half a day. Then this cruel death spread everywhere around, following the course of the sun, and there died at Leicester in the small parish of St. Leonard more than 380 persons, in the parish of Holy Cross, 400, in the parish of St. Margaret's Leicester, 700, and so in every parish, a, a great multitude. Then the Bishop of London sent word throughout his whole diocese, giving general power to each and every priest, regular as well as secular, to hear confessions and to give absolution to all persons with full Episcopal authority except only in case of debt. In this case, the debtor was to pay the debt, if he was able, while he lived, or others were to fulfil his obligations from his property after his death. Likewise, the Pope granted full remission of all sins to anyone receiving absolution when in danger of death, and granted that this power should last until Easter next following, and that everyone might choose whatever confessor he pleased. In the same year, there was a great moraine of sheep everywhere in the kingdom, so that in one place in a single pasture more than 5,000 sheep died, and they putrefied so that neither bird nor beast would touch them. Everything was low in price because of the fear of death, for very few people took any care of riches or property of any kind. A man could have a horse that had been worth 40 shillings for half a mark, which is six and eight, a fat ox for... Four shillings, a, crack, a cow for twelvepence, a heifer for sixpence, a fat weather for fourpence, a sheep for threepence, a lamb for twopence, a large pig for fivepence, a stone of wool was worth ninepence. Sheep and cattle ran at large through the fields and among the crops. There was none to drive them off or herd them. For lack of care they perished in ditches and hedges in incalculable numbers throughout all districts, 
and none knew what to do. For there was no memory of death so stern and cruel since the time of Vortican, king of the Britons, in whose day, as Bede testifies, the living did not suffice to bury the dead. In the following autumn a reaper was not to be had for lower wage than eightpence, and his meals a mower for not less than tenpence with meals, wherefore many crops wasted in the fields for lack of harvesters. But in the year of the pestilence, as has been said above, there was so great an abundance of every kind of grain that almost no one cared for it. The Scots, hearing of the dreadful plague among the English, suspected it had come about through the vengeance of God, and according to the common report, they were accustomed to swear, be the foul death of England. Believing that the wrath of God had befallen the English, they assembled in Selkirk Forest with the intention of invading the kingdom, when the fierce mortality overtook them, and in a short time five thousand perished. As the rest, the strong and the feeble, were preparing to return to their own country, they were followed and attacked by the English, who slew countless numbers of them. Master Thomas of Bradwardine was consecrated by the Pope Archbishop of Canterbury, and when he returned to England he came to London, but within two days was dead. Meanwhile the king sent proclamation into all the counties that reapers and other labourers should not take more than they had been accustomed to take, under penalty appointed by state. But the labourers were so lifted up and obstinate that they would not listen to the king's command but if any one wished to have them, he had to give them what they wanted, and either lose his fruit or crops, or satisfy the lofty and covetous wishes of the workmen. And when it was known to the king that they had not observed his command, and had given greater wages to the labourers, he levied heavy fines upon abbots, priors, knights, greater and lesser, and other great folk, and small folk of the realm, of some hundreds, of some hundred shillings, of some forty shillings, and of some... Twenty shillings from each according to what he could give. And afterwards the king had many labourers arrested and sent them to prison. Many withdrew themselves and went into the forests and woods, and those who were taken were heavily fined. Their ringleaders were made to swear that they would not take daily wages beyond the ancient custom, and then they were freed from prison. And in like manner was done with all the other craftsmen in the boroughs and villages. After the aforesaid pestilence, many buildings, great and small, fell into ruins in every city, borough, and village, for lack of inhabitants. Likewise, many villages and hamlets became desolate, not a house being left in them, all having died who dwelt there. And it was probable that many such villages would never be inhabited again. From the 11th of July, 1754, Henry Fielding reports on another death thus. A most tragical incident fell out this day at sea. While the ship was under sail, but making as will appear no great way, a kitten, one of four of the feline inhabitants of the cabin, fell from the window into the water. An alarm was immediately given to the captain, who was then upon deck, and received it with the utmost concern and many bitter oaths. He immediately gave orders to the steersman in favour of the poor thing, as he called it, the sails were instantly slackened, and all hands, as the phrase is, employed to recover the poor animal. I was, I own, extremely surprised at all this, less indeed at the captain's extreme tenderness than at his conceiving any possibility of success, for if Puss had been my, had, had nine thousand instead of nine lives, I'd have concluded they'd all been lost. The boatswain, however, was more sanguine with hope, for having stripped himself of his jacket, breeches and shirt, 
he leaped boldly into the water, and to my great astonishment, in a few minutes, returned to the ship, bearing the motionless animal in his mouth. Nor was this, I observed, a matter of such great difficulty, as it appeared to my ignorance, and possibly may seem to that of my freshwater reader. The kitten was now exposed to air and sun on the deck, where its life, of which it retained no symptoms, was despaired of by all. The captain's humanity, if I may call it, did not so totally destroy his philosophy as to make him yield himself up to affliction on this melancholy occasion. Having felt his loss like a man, he resolved to show he could bear it like one, and having declared he had rather have lost a cask of run or band brandy, betook himself to threshing at backgammon with the Portuguese friar, in which innocent amusement they had passed about two-thirds of their time. But as I have perhaps a little too wantonly endeavoured to raise the tender passions of my readers in this narrative, I should think myself unpardonable if I concluded it without giving them the satisfaction of hearing that the kitten at last recovered, to the great joy of the good captain, but to the great disappointment of some of the sailors, who asserted that the drowning cat was the very surest way of raising a favourable wind, a supposition of which, though we have heard several plausible accounts, we will not presume to assign the true original reason. Well, the next soul is not quite so fortunate as that kitten. Horace Walpole reports from the 13th of November, 1760, on the death and burial of King George II. Do you know, I had the curiosity to go to the burying the other night. I'd never seen a royal funeral. Nay, I walked as a rag of quality, which I found would be, and so it was, the easiest way of seeing it. It's absolutely a noble sight. The prince's chamber hung with purple and a quantity of silver lamps, the coffin under a canopy of pure purple velvet, and six vast chandeliers of silver on high stands had a very good effect. The ambassador from Tripoli and his son were carried to see that chamber. The procession through a line of foot guards, every seventh man bearing a torch, the horse guards lining the outside, the officers with drawn sabres and crepe sashes on horseback, the drums muffled, the five spells tolling, and minute guns. All this was very solemn. But the charm was the entrance of the abbey, where we were received by the dean and chapter in rich copes, the choir and almsmen all bearing torches, the whole abbey so illuminated that one saw it to greater advantage than by day, the tombs, long aisles and fretted roof all appearing distinctly and with the happiest chiaroscuro. They wanted nothing but incense, and little chapels here and there with priests saying mass for the repose of the defunct, yet one could not complain of its not being Catholic enough. I had been in dread of being coupled with some boy of ten years old, but the heralds were not very accurate, and I walked with George Grenville, taller and older enough to keep me in countenance. When we came to the chapel of Henry the Seventh, all solemnity and decorum ceased, no order was observed. People sat or stood where they could or would. The yeomen of the guard were crying out for help, oppressed by the immense weight of the coffin. The bishop read sadly and blundered in the prayers. The fine chapter, Man that is born of a woman, was chanted, not read, and the anthem, besides being unmeasurably tedious, would have served as well for a nuptial. The real serious part was the figure of the Duke of Cumberland, heightened by a thousand melancholy circumstances. 
He had a dark brown Adonai wig and a cloak of black cloth with train of five yards. Attending the funeral of the father, how little reason soever he had to love him, could not be pleasant. His leg extremely bad, yet forced to stand upon it near two hours, his face bloated and distorted with his late paralytic stroke, which has affected too one of his eyes, and placed over the mouth of the vault, into which in all probability he must himself so soon descend. Think how unpleasant a situation. He bore it all with a firm and unaffected countenance. This grave scene was fully contrasted by the burlesque Duke of Newcastle. He fell into a fit of crying the moment he came into the chapel and flung himself back in a stool, the archbishop hovering over him with a smelling bottle. But in two minutes his curiosity got the better of his hypocrisy, and he ran about the chapel with his glass to spy who was, who was not there, spying with one hand and mopping his eyes with t'other. Then returned the fear of catching cold, and the Duke of Cumberland, who was sinking with heat, felt himself weighed down, and, turning round, found it was the Duke of Newcastle standing upon his train to avoid the chill of the marble. It was very theatric to look down into the vault, where the coffin lay, attended by mourners with lights. Clavering, the groom of the bedchamber, refused to sit up with the body, and was dismissed by the King's order. I think we should be grateful that the latest funeral of a monarch was far more seemly. Whilst this episode is headed the end of what all, uh, this one is actually the first Channel flight from 25th of July 1909, but it is the end of man not being able to fly across water. Louis Blériot reports on his own journey. It was a 28 horsepower monoplane and he averaged 46 miles an hour, making the crossing in 40 minutes. The plane was later exhibited at Selfridges and 120,000 people filed past it in just four days. In the early morning of Sunday the 25th of July 1909, I left my hotel at Calais and drove out to the field where my aeroplane was garaged. On the way, I noted that the weather was favourable to my endeavour. I therefore ordered the destroyer Escorpette, placed at my disposal by the French government, to go to sea. I examined my aeroplane, I started the engine, found it worked well. At half past four, we could see all around. Daylight had come. My thoughts were only upon the flight and my determination to accomplish it this morning. 4.35. To Ypres. In an instant, I'm in the air, my engine making 1,200 revolutions, almost its highest speed, in order that I may get quickly over the telegraph wires along the edge of the cliff. As soon as I'm over the cliff, I reduce my speed. There is now no need to force my engine. I begin my flight, steady and sure, towards the coast of England. I have no apprehensions, no sensations. Pas du tout. The escopette has seen me. She is driving ahead across the channel at full speed. She makes perhaps 26 miles an hour. What matters? I'm making over 40. Rapidly I overtake her, travelling at a height of 250 feet. The moment is supreme, yet I surprise myself by feeling no exultation. Below me is the sea, the motion of the waves not pleasant. I drive on. Ten minutes go. I turn my head to see whether I'm proceeding in the right direction. I'm amazed. There's nothing to be seen, neither the destroyer, nor France, nor England. I'm alone. I am lost. Then I saw the cliffs of Dover. 
Away to the west was a spot where I'd intended to land. The wind had taken me out of my course. I turned, and now I was in difficulties, for the wind here by the cliffs was much stronger, and my speed was reduced as I fought against it. My beautiful aeroplane responded. I saw an opening, and I found myself over dry land. I attempted a landing, but the wind caught me and whirled me round two or three times. At once I stopped my motor, and instantly my machine fell straight on the ground. I was safe on your shore. Soldiers in khaki ran up, and also a policeman. Two of my compatriots were on the spot. They kissed my cheeks. I was overwhelmed. We move on in the 20th century to the 28th of June, 1919, just 10 years after that first flight. And the end of World War I, as Harold Nicholson reports on the signing of the Treaty of Versailles. La Journée du Versailles. Lunch early and leave the Majestic in a car with Hedlam Morley. He's a historian, yet he dislikes historical occasions. Apart from that, he's a sensitive person and doesn't rejoice in seeing great nations humbled. I, having none of such requirements of decencies, I'm just excited. There's no crowd at all until we reach Ville d'Avray, but there are poilus at every crossroad, waving red flags and stopping all other traffic. When we reach Versailles, the crowd thickens. The avenue up to the chateau is lined with cavalry in steel-blue helmets. The pennants of their lances flutter red and white in the sun. In the Cour d'Honneur, from which the captive German cannon have tactfully been removed, are further troops. There are generals, Patan, Gourat, Mongan. They are Sincerians, very military and orderly. Hedlam Moll and I creep out of our car hurriedly, feeling civilian and grubby and wholly unimportant. We hurry through the door. Magnificent upon the staircase stand in the Guard Republican, two caryatid on every step, their sabres at the salute. This is a great ordeal, but there are other people climbing the stairs with us. Hedlam and I have an eye meet. His thin cigaretted fingers make a gesture of dismissal. He's not a militarist. We enter the two anterooms, our feet softening onto the thickest of Savonori carpets. They've ransacked the guard meuble for their finest pieces. Never, since the Grand Siècle, has Versailles been more ostentatious or more embossed. We enter the Galerie de Glace. It is divided into three sections. At the far end are the press, already thickly installed. In the middle, there's a horseshoe table for the plenipotentiaries. In front of that, like a guillotine, is the table for the signatures. It's supposed to be raised on a dais, but if so, a dais can be but a few inches high. In the nearer distance are rows and rows of tabaret for the distinguished guests, the deputies, the senators and the members of the delegations. There must be seats for over a thousand persons. This robs the ceremony of all privilege and therefore all dignity. It's like the alien hall. Clemenceau is already seated under the heavy ceiling as we arrive. Le Roi runs the scroll above him. Gouverne par lui-même. He looks small and yellow, a crunched homunculus. Conversation clatters out amongst the mixed groups around us. It is, as always on such occasions, like water running into a tin bath. I've never been able to get other people to recognise that similarity. 
There was a tin bath in my house in Wellington. One turned it on when one had finished and ran upstairs shouting, Bath ready! to one successor. Right ho! he would answer. And there would come the sound of water pouring into the tin bath below while he hurried into his dressing gown. It's exactly the sound of people talking in undertones in a closed room. But it's not an analogy which I can get others to accept. People step over the abusun benches and escabo to talk to friends. Meanwhile, the delegates arrive in little bunches and push up their central aisles slowly. Wilson and Lloyd George are among the last. They take their seats at the central table. The table is at last full. Clemenceau glances to right and left. People sit down upon their escabeau but continue chattering. Clemenceau makes a sign to the ushers. They say, shh, shh, shh. People cease chattering. And there's only the sound of occasional coughing and the dry rustle of programmes. The officials of the protocol of the Foreign Office move up the aisle and say, shh, shh, again. There is then an absolute hush, followed by a sharp military order. The Garde Republicaine at the doorway flash their swords into their scabbards with a loud click. Fit entre les amants, says Clemenceau in the ensuing silence. His voice is distant but harshly penetrating. A hush follows. Through the door, at the end, appear two huissiers with silver chains. They march in single file. After them come four officers of France, Great Britain, America and Italy, and then... Isolated and pitiable come the two German delegates, Dr. Müller, Dr. Bell. The silence is terrifying. Their feet upon a strip of parquet between the Savonnerie carpets echo hollow and duplicate. They keep their eyes fixed away from those 2,000 staring eyes fixed upon the ceiling. They're deathly pale. They do not appear as representatives of a brutal militarism. The one is thin and pink-eyelided, the second fiddle in a Brunswick orchestra. The other is moon-faced and suffering, a priva dozon. It is almost painful. They're conducted to their chairs. Clemenceau at once breaks the silence. Monsieur, he rafts, la séance est ouverte. He has a few ill-chosen words. We're here to sign a treaty of peace. The Germans leap up anxiously when he has finished, since they know that they are the first to sign. William Martin, as if a theatre manager, motions them petulantly to sit down again. Mantu translates Clemenceau's words into English. Then St. Quentin advances towards the Germans and, with the utmost dignity, leads them to the little table on which the treaty is expanded. There is general tension. They sign. There's a general relaxation. Conversation hums again in an undertone. The delegates stand up one by one and pass onwards to the queue which waits by the signature table. Meanwhile, people buzz around the main table getting autographs. The single file of plenipotentiaries waiting to approach the table gets thicker. It goes quickly. The officials of the Quai d'Orsay stand round, indicating places to sign, indicating procedure, blotting with neat little pads. Suddenly, from outside, comes the crash of guns thundering a salute. It announces to Paris that the Second Treaty of Versailles has been signed by Dr. Muller and Dr. Bell. Through the few open windows come the sound of distant crowds cheering hoarsely, and still the signature goes on. We had been warned it might last three hours, yet almost at once it seemed that the queue was getting thin. Only three, then two, and then one delegate remained to sign. 
His name had hardly been blotted before the hussier began again, their shh, shh, cutting suddenly short the wide murmur which had begun again. There was a final hush. La séance est levée, rasped Clemenceau. Not a word, more or less. We kept our seats, while the Germans were conducted like prisoners from the dock, their eyes still fixed upon some distant point of the horizon. We move to the closing days of the next war, the Second World War, and Lionel King, who was about eight years old in June 1944, recalls his recollection of the V-1 pilotless flying bombs, of which about 8,000 were launched against Britain in that year between June and September. On the night of the 12th of June, the first of Hitler's V-1s fell on London and the southeast. News spread in from the Kent and Sussex coats of aircraft with jet nozzles, fire exhausts and odd engine sounds. Over Kent, some of these craft had suddenly stopped and fallen with a devastating explosion to follow. Bombing, of course, was familiar to our family. We had moved from West Ham earlier in the war. I'd spent endless nights in the dugout in the garden, unable to sleep because of Nanny's snoring. And now it was happening in the daytime too. The first came over one afternoon. Our windows and doors were open in those first fine June days and the drone of the approaching flying bomb was quite unmistakable. It gave us little warning. Ten seconds and the engine cut out directly overhead. There was an oddly resounding explosion about half a mile away. The boy Foot, as my mother called him, cycled up there and reported back. King Edward Road, there's debris everywhere. Fire brigade and wardens are there, still digging him out. I saw it coming, I was up on the roof. I was envious of his roof. You could have seen anything from there. Where's King Edward Road, Mum? asked Doug. By the county ground, it's where Mr Gibbon lives. You know, he's in the home guard with Dad. Next day, we took to the shelter when we heard the drone. Again. The engine cut out, again, seemingly over the house. Then it spluttered into life again. Doug and I laughed out loud. It was all rather a joke. Mum told us to duck. The droning engine had stopped. Eight-second wait. A disappointing, unspectacular bang. I found out where it dropped when I go up the shops in a minute, said Mum. Don't open the door to any knocks. Later, she told us it had fallen on a railway siding behind the dust destructor. Three old railway trucks were destroyed, a railway, railwayman had told her. Soon, so many V1s were coming over, over that the authorities gave up air raid warnings. They would have been sounding the siren all the time. When a bomb announced his approach, Doug and I dived for the shelter, not forgetting to grab our cat Jimmy if he was in sight. Sometimes Mum was out shopping and we went to the shelter alone. We were never worried or afraid. It was all over in ten seconds anyway. One such afternoon, a V1 fell further up the road. We jumped out of the shelter and saw a huge mushroom of dust and rubble rising above the rooftops. You could see individual bricks and planks of wood sailing up into the clear sky. It looked after a few seconds like a ragged umbrella. The traffic picked up again in the road. We ran through the house to the front door. Droves of people were rushing up the road, some on bicycles, many in great distress, towards the scene. Many we knew by sight. That goes that man from the oil shop, explained Doug. We'd never seen him this side of the counter before. The dust cloud had settled now. The first ambulances were pulling up at the rest centre at the church opposite. Scruffy-looking people, some shaking, were being helped in. Mum appeared. Back into the house, she barked. Nanny will be home from work soon. She'll tell you all about it. 
Nanny came in later. The buzz bomb had fallen by her factory. Mrs Lee has copped it. It fell on her house in Lee Hall Road. It's in a state round there. When it exploded, the foreman told her she could go round and see if her place was all right. I went with her. We went through it in two or three minutes after it happened. The incident was not without humour for Doug and me. A spotter on Jenkins' roof saw it coming. He just threw himself over the edge. It's 80 feet off the ground. Three years later, and the world is coming back to normal. John Hislop reports on the Grand National of the 29th of March, 1947. There were still food and fuel shortages, and the post-war public sought relief in sport. The Home Secretary decreed that the 47 Grand National should be run on a Saturday so as not disrupt the working week. I think it's been run on Saturdays ever since. There were 57 of us lined up at the start, like sardines in a tin. Cammy's position was about one-third of the way from the inside between rearmament and some chicken. As usual, there was much restiveness and scrimmaging, with the starter shouting, Keep off the tapes! Then the gate went up and we jumped off, most of us eagerly, as if we'd only had five furlongs to go. Taking into consideration the heavy going after the morning's rain, the initial pace of the field as a whole was such that no horse could hope both to maintain it and complete the course. Cammy was squeezed when the field broke, but settled into a swinging stride, which was not fast enough to keep anywhere near the solid wall of leaders, and we found ourselves going over the first fence well behind, but clear of any interference. Cammy jumped it perfectly, in the style of a real entry horse, standing well back and landing without pitching. There were two or three other horses lying in the same area as Cammy, with a loose horse or two in the vicinity. I went rather a long way round towards the outside for two reasons. In the first place, the going there was less churned up, and second, I wanted Cammy to be completely clear of any bumps or other mishap which had put a horse of such frail build on the floor. He was still jumping perfectly. In fact, Cammy never put a foot wrong all the way. His swinging, even gait, gave me the greatest confidence and the consistency of his jumping. Every fence measured off long before he got to it made me feel certain that wherever he finished, he would complete the course. As we turned into the country for the last circuit, Cammy gradually began to overtake the field. Jumping beaches for the second time, our hopes of a possible victory became something more than the ambition of every steeplechase rider. There were, I suppose, some six or eight horses, that is, with their riders still on board, in front of me, but most of them were tiring, and as I passed them, at least one rider threw me a word of encouragement that means so much in a race of this kind. Well done, Johnny! Keep going! someone said. As we crossed the road with only two more fences to jump, I could see Prince Regent in front of me, visibly tiring, and still a good way ahead, the green jacket of Loft Con, and the green and blue of the eventual winner, of whose identity I was as ignorant as, I suppose, were the majority of spectators. Coming into the last fence but one, there were two ho loose horses in front of me, and on the inside, Prince Regent. I realised then that I had no hope of winning, as Cammy was tiring, the heavy going had taken toll of his delicate frame, and only his courage and innate stamina kept him going but he jumped the fence perfectly and went on towards the last with, I think, Prince Regent about level with us, but very tired. We landed safely, with a long stretch the winning post spread out before us, both tired but with Prince Regent beaten for sure. I got out my whip and kept swinging it without ever hitting Cammy, and he answered nobly, gradually overhauling Mr Rank's gallant horse 
to take us into third place. And so the place jockeys rode back to the three unsaddling enclosures, appointed her first, second and third. Ahead of me went the winner, Kauhu, between two mounted policemen, surrounded by a crowd including the owner, trainer and friends, all running alongside to pat the winner and to congratulate his rider. As for me, my feeling is of threefold gratitude. To the horse for his courage and the way he carried me, to Tom Mason, the trainer, for Cammy's wonderful condition, and to the gods for the luck which followed our journey. And we move on to coronation year, the last coronation year, 1953. And the event that was reported on the day of the coronation, but actually happened on the 29th of May of that year, the conquest of Everest. This is James or Jan Morris's report. The masters of Everest, Hillary and Tenzing, returned to this camp at 22,000 feet from the South Coal yesterday afternoon in a blaze of sunshine and triumphant emotion, bringing their news with them. It was a significantly beautiful day among the snows of the upper western coombe. All was crisp and sparkling with the awful block of Nupta only faintly shining with a curious greasy sheen of the melting surface snow. From the ridge of Lotza, a spiral of snow powder was driven upwards by the wind like a genie from a bottle. From down the coombe came from time to time a sudden thrilling high-pitched whistle as a boulder screamed down from the heights. Everest itself, its rock ridge graceless against a blue sky, was as hard and enigmatical as ever. It was a day for great news. Here in the camp on the north side of the coombe, there was already yesterday morning a tension, nervous, nerve-wracking and yet deliciously exciting. At nine o'clock on the previous morning, the 29th of May, the two summit climbers had been seen by their support group, Gregory, Lowe and a Sherpa, already crossing the south summit at about 28,500 feet and going strongly up the final ridge. The weather had been perfect. The gales of the preceding days, which had so ravaged Camp 7 on the South Coal, had died down. Hillary and Tenzing were known to be two of the most powerful climbers in the world and were using the well-tested open-circuit oxygen equipment. Reports brought down from the South Summit by Bordelon and Evans, who had reached it on the 26th of May in the expedition's first assault, seemed to show that the unknown final ridge was not impassable, though undoubtedly difficult. Because of these several encouraging factors, hopes at Camp 4 were dangerously high and the feeling of taut nerves and suppressed wild convictions was immeasurably strengthened when, just before lunch, five tiny figures were seen making their way across the traverse at the top of the face of Lhasa. They could only be the summit team and their supporters from the South Coal. They were moving fast and in three hours they'd be in the coombe. The camp was now alive with stinging expectation. Here in the camp, Colonel Hunt sat on a wooden packing case, physically immobile, his waterproof hat jammed hard over his head, his face white with plastered glacier cream. Four or five of the climbers vacantly fingered newspapers in the big pyramid tent. One man sat outside with binoculars reporting the progress of the descending party. They must be getting to Camp 6, the watchers said. They're hidden behind that ice pinnacle with a vertical crack in it. You know the one. Two of them are sitting down. Now they're up again. Only another hour to wait. What are the odds? At last, soon after 1.30, just as the radio was announcing the reported failure of the assault, the party emerged above a rise in the ground, 
300 yards or so above the camp, their blue windproof jackets sharp and cheerful against the glistening snow. Hilary and Tenzing were leading. All at once, it was through the camp, by the magic wireless of excitement, that Everest had been climbed. There was a sudden rush up the snow slope in the sunshine to meet the assault party. Hilary, looking extraordinarily fresh, raised his ice axe in greeting. Tenzing slipped sideways in the snow and smiled, and in a trice they were surrounded. Hounds were rung ecstatically, photographs taken. There was the whir of the cine camera and laughter interrupted congratulations. Hilary and Tenzing, by now old climbing colleagues, posed with arms interlocked. Hillary's face aglow but controlled, Tenzing split with a brilliant smile of pleasure. As the group moved down the hill into the camp, a band of Sherpas came differently forward to pay tribute to the greatest climber of them all. Like a modest monarch, Tenzing received their greeting. Some bent their bodies forward, their hands clasped as in prayer. Some shook hands lightly and delicately, the fingers scarcely touching. One veteran, his pigtail flowing, bowed to touch Tenzing's hand with his forehead. We so far forgot ourselves, wrote an English climber of an earlier generation, as to shake hands on the summit. This expedition so far forgot itself that everywhere one fancied that sunglasses were steaming embarrassingly, and suddenly, as if spontaneously, each climber, Hillary and Tenzing the first of them, turned to Colonel Hunt, reflective in the background, and shook his hand in recognition of the truth that in a team venture of great happiness and success, his had been the friendly hand which inexorably, as it seems, had led the expedition to success. In the pyramid tent, over an omelette served on an aluminium plate, Hilary told the story of the final climb. It was at 11.30am on the 29th of May, 1953, that they stepped at last onto the snow-covered final eminence of Everest. Hillary describes this as a symmetrical, beautiful, snow-coned summit, very different from the harsh rock ridge, which is all that can be seen from below. A view was not spectacular, they were too high for good landscape, and all below looked flat and monotonous. To the north, the route to the summit on which pre-war Everest expeditions pinned their hopes looked in its upper reaches prohibitively steep. Tenzing spent the 15 minutes on the summit eating mint cake and taking photographs, for which purpose Hillary removed his oxygen mask without ill effects. Tenzing produced a string of miscellaneous flags and held them high while Hillary photographed them. They included the Union Jack, the Nepal flag and that of the UN. Tenzing, who is a devout Buddhist, also laid on the ground in offering some sweets, bars of chocolate and packets of biscuits. And there you have it. Thank you for having been a witness of the Witnesses of History podcast series. Most of the readings throughout the series have come from the Faber Book of Reportage, edited by John Carey and published by Faber and Faber in 1987 with the edition I read from published in 1989. ISBN, should you be seeking for it, 0571-141-633. Goodbye. You've been listening to all 
are some of 50 editions of The Witnesses of History, presented by Jeff Lumley. Contact details are jeff at lumin.org.uk. That's L-U-M-I-N dot O-R-G dot U-K. Visit the website www.lumin.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Jeff Lumley.